This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, Dreamland. My name is Jeremy Vaney, and I am the special guest host for Whitley Strieber. Um, this will actually be, I've been doing this for a little bit over a year, and um, I've decided to call it quits uh, because I need to concentrate on my book and my own public speaking. Um, so I'm going to be going to do that. Um, so if in the future you want to keep up with me, I will be at OurUndoing.com. That is my website. And I've been talking on here about uh, doing what I've sort of semi-jokingly been calling ufological grad school, sort of a video series on uh, high strangeness experiences. And um, I'm, I still want to do that. I've just got too much going on to be able to get to it as soon as I wanted to get to it. Um, but if you write to me, jeremy at ourundoing.com, or just go to the website, ourundoing.com, there's a contact form. If you are interested and you want me to remember that, <laughs> uh, please go and, and let me know um, so I can uh, email you when, when I'm ready to do that. Okay, uh, I would like to thank, of course, Whitley Strieber and his staff for accommodating me here. Um, and I think that this week's episode is a great bookend to my first episode with Alicia Pulianisi. Um, where if you remember that far back, we talked about um, the builder mounds in America and the uh, sort of racist political uh, shenanigans that went on to make them seem as though they were uh, not built by the first peoples in America. This episode is not exactly that. This is, uh, we'll be talking with Tom Peake, uh, who is the author of Mauna Kea, and uh, it's a novel, but there's an underlying nonfiction behind this novel, and I want to get to that. It's not often that we do novels on this show, but um, it deals with the politics of the mountain, or volcano really, Mauna Kea, uh, involving, maybe you've heard about the 30-meter telescope debacle. Um, so there's politics and intrigue and, and that sort of thing, but underlying it all is the magic of Hawaii. I mean, underneath the, like the politics are an important part, but also, and um, eternally so, um, is this sense of real magic and metaphysics, as Tom will say, he will chastise me for using the word paranormal, um, but metaphysics, there's a metaphysics at work here, oh boy is there, and I want to get to that with him because he's not Hawaiian. And um, it's not often that a non-Hawaiian gets to, even in fiction, really write about such things here and still not be harassed <laughs> on the island, you know, by people who are like, yeah, you're doing cultural appropriation. Tom is not doing cultural appropriation, thankfully. Um, but he is getting at, he really the book is showing um, from the so-called normal rational uh, sort of day-to-day -day level of Hawaii to the magical undercurrent. Um, he's really showing sort of the fullness of what it is to actually live here beyond the, uh, you know, sort of mythical paradise that, you know, is promoted for tourism's sake, right? Um, there's a lot more going on 
beneath that surface. And he really gets to it. And But what I really want to get to and focus on with this interview, and I think we do, um, is the so-called magical element or the metaphysical element, um, which is different than what, you know, what we heard from Alicia Puglianisi um, about builder mounds. But so I, I think it's sort of, um, I think it's a perfect way to go out. So thanks, Tom Peak for uh, being my final guest. Um, you can find him at TomPeak.com. And thank all of you for listening. And now let's listen to Tom Peak talk about his book, Mauna Kea, right after this. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome the author of Mauna Kea, a novel of Hawaii, the award-winning Tom Peake. Tom, welcome to Dreamland, and thank you for doing this. Yeah. Aloha, Jeremy. Aloha to your listeners. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. So it's interesting. We don't do uh, a whole lot of fiction on this, or at least you know, people who know that they're doing fiction. Uh, <laughs> but this book obviously comes from an authentic and nonfiction place um, it, in many respects. Um, and I want to get into some of those. But, I mean, obviously we're dealing with Hawaii. And uh, you're, to my knowledge, you're not Hawaiian. So how does it work out that a non-Hawaiian uh, writes a book of Hawaii? That's a good question. Um, you know, I came to Hawaii uh, to visit someone some 30, over 30 years ago, who was uh, actually an auntie of mine from the island I grew up on, on Great Cloud Island in Minnesota. And I was on a vagabond journey and uh, found out I could get a cheap flight. And I wanted to go find out why did this woman that has known me since I was just a little cakey, a kid, um, suddenly at age 55, she disappears from Gray Cloud Island, uh, which is an island on the Mississippi River uh, in the backwaters, and a little tiny township. And she up and disappears to someplace called Hilo, Hawaii. And so... I'm on a vagabond trip. I, I got a cheap flight from uh, California. I flew out, and, and she was living in Keokaha, 
she had a, with her Filipino boyfriend who was completely connected with a big extended family, including into Hawaii, into um, Native Hawaiian among, there were Native Hawaiians in that, that extended family. And so I was immediately thrust into kind of local culture through her. Um, I had never intended to come to Hawaii. I only came to see her, but she was in Keokaha. First day took me up to see Kilauea, second day up to Mauna Kea, up to Halepohaku. And suddenly I realized this is a very different picture of Hawaii than I ever imagined. And growing up on the mighty Mississippi, on the upper Mississippi, in a backwaters archipelago with river people, I immediately resonated with the primal nature. This was kind of like Great Great Cloud Island and, and Lake Superior, or, uh, the Mississippi River, plus Lake Superior, where I had sailed and sh shipwrecked dove and been going there since I was a kid. But those are primal places. But this this was even more primal. And so I actually decided while I was sleeping on her uh, living room floor that I was going to not go to Asia on my vagabond journey. I was going to go to the South Pacific. So uh, this is a little bit of a digression. Um, but to give this background, but it's important. I ended up here not intending to be here, almost by really by accident. And then I resonated also with the local people because they're more like and um, people uh, that I grew up with on the river in this little township and along the river, um, those little river towns. And uh, when I got back from the South Seas, hitchhiking by boat, uh, running out of money in Australia, I decided, you know, I'm going to come back and see if I can get a job. And lo and behold, my first job was to be a tour guide part-time. It's like three-quarters time. Um, living and working on Mauna Kea. I, I lived at the base camp. Uh, so, and then I short, so then I also, one of the many jobs I did to support my writing was I ended up also working on Kilauea as an eruption duty ranger. These were all part-time jobs. I mean, not full-time, especially the park jobs, no benefits in the, in that one, except the benefit was I was working on two of the most sacred places in the archipelago and immediately began to make connections with and develop relationships with people who were connected to those two places. So when I was first here, particularly, I mean, most of my friends, even to this day, most of them are local people of various ethnicities and including native Hawaiians, almost from the beginning. And it was through the Mauna Kea connection that one of the, um, one of the telescope operators who was native hawaiian introduced me to the woman that ended up being my kupuna and ultimately actually hanaid me into her family so for for people who don't know what is kupuna and what is hanai uh thank you um kupuna in general terms means an elder but it, it usually is when we use that word it also means revered elder i mean someone with a particular place in their their culture or their society and um and so um 
And the, the other question was, oh, and Hanide means that they, it's, an, it's a kind of an informal ad, adopt, it's a Polynesian tradition. If oftentimes families will say, oh, become part of our clan. And so Auntie did that, which meant that when we were with her family, that also let them, they were relieved because then they could just be themselves. They didn't, you know, yeah, the guy's a Haole, but, you know, I, I vetted him. He's, he's part of our Ohana, right? And so um, between my friends and my kupuna or elder, um, I had suddenly was drawn into Hawaiian culture at a pretty deep level that actually challenged my Western thinking. Um, and um, and then Hawaiians would ask, some of these people would ask for my involvement. Like I, I wasn't really, they've had plenty of missionaries, right? But so I, I'm not into like offering help people don't want. <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> the the telescope operator, Keloha Fishota, who ultimately became one of the major um, spokespeople for, for protection of Mauna Kea as a cultural practitioner. And, and that's the other thing. Many of these people, not all, but some were cultural practitioners, um, asked for me to help with a big healing ceremony that was going to take place uh, on Kilauea Volcano about a week before the 100th anniversary of the overthrow. And I had a particular kind of cross-cultural role because I had had a lot of media experience and political experience before I came to Hawaii, though they didn't know that. It was some kind of instinctive thing. Anyway, I was asked to, the, the, the elders at this big ceremony called Kamaka Eha, which in which the park closed the top of the vault of Kilauea for 24 hours for a healing ceremony. And it had come from a vision from an elder. And the so they were and they the other elders in the community said, Yeah, this is a real deal. We need to, we have to do this. And so they got the cooperation of the park. By then I had actually worked some with the park. And so my job was to be with the media who had been allowed limited, very limited media access to this cultural event. This is not a show. Anyone who came, people were invited to come who were not from the culture, but they had they, no gawkers, just participants. This is about a healing ceremony. And so uh, my job was to um, monitor the media that was there and make sure they followed the protocols like no filming no photography no recording when people were doing prayers for example and i had to enforce it and with me i'm like the howley guy in his howley clothes with me was a, a nakoa which is a, a a warrior guard wearing his malo and having his pololu which is a big spear <laughs> and there was one guy who took a picture. And I mean, we were both on him, including uh, the Hawaiian with his spear pointed at him, like, you know, and we almost kicked him out. So that was the beginning of involvement of mine 
um, is a kind of insider participant in, in a number of ways that evolved. But what it did is, you know, that ceremony was a healing ceremony, which was what many Hawaiians have said, you know, Kamaka Eha, the 24 hours ceremony, was what led to no violence at the 100th anniversary when 15,000 Hawaiians marched through Honolulu to the uh, to the um, to the palace of the uh, you know the former palace of the queen that had been overthrown with the cooperation of the United States. So that was a remarkable thing. And um, anyway, that's how I got involved. And and then my own values. It didn't take very long for me to realize my own values and some of the ways I was raised on the river were very, and some of the experiences I'd had on the river were very much like I, I resonated with the Hawaiian perspective. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that things that Westerners often call a superstition or this is lore and this is a legend and so on, it turns out that that's a very intricate worldview that's evolved over a 5,000 year period from when those the Polynesians first moved from um, somewhere around Taiwan, began to move west through the Pacific in small boats, sailboats, navigating their way to discover archipelagos and, and then living during that 5,000 year period, living um, on small islands. And so by the time they get to Hawaii, they, they're, they've got a pretty sophisticated, complicated, um, intricate worldview that is far from, oh, a colorful story of lore, uh, you know, a bunch of native superstitions. I mean, these are the ways that Westerners who have not been exposed to that, you know, often kind of categorized Hawaiians and other Polynesian cultures. So. Um, so what I've written, this book, so to, to sort of wrap your question, is that really there was, there was so much that I witnessed personally. And then, of course, along the way, I'm trying to understand it by going into the most credible of the, of the old literature, you know, by Hawaiians that was less contaminated by the missionary period. And also the reading the modern history to kind of put Hawaii into place. All the time I'm doing this, but primarily it was my own experiences with my friends and um, with my kupuna. And, um, and then I had to process that. And I'm a writer. I had written for many years for the University of Minnesota before I ever came here, but it was all kind of left brain stuff. And so, but I knew how to write. I had the discipline to write. That was how I was going to process. That's my meditation. I figured, I, I figured a lot of it out first with a, a, a novel I never wrote, um, based in part on my experiences in the South Pacific, including getting caught in a coup d'état in Fiji, and then um, Daughters of Fire, which revolved around um, the, the active volcanoes. And, by, and, and drawing on what I'd learned as an eruption ranger and my connections with USGS people and with native Hawaiians, including elders and practitioners from Kilauea. 
and then the Monokea book, which reflects a 30-year relationship with the mountain, first as one of the early tour guides on Monokea, and until I could no longer morally stay there after they proposed, you know, over a hundred telescopes, more new telescopes, it was untenable. And then also as a person directly involved, mostly behind the scenes, but not entirely. I, I also testified at meetings and attended protests in the later years. But I was involved from the mid 90s all the way to today with Native Hawaiians um, in trying to protect the mountain. So yeah, I'm an outsider, but but I but I was invited in. And then once invited in, asked to participate. And so I did. And um, and it was consistent with my own values. And then, of course, in, as time went on, I became what anthropologists sometimes call a kind of a liminal person who can move in and out of two cultures. And, and so I have a this. Both of my books reflect the ability to pretty honestly portray um, both Hawaiian culture but also more importantly, the American culture that's putting so much pressure on the Hawaiian culture here. I mean, I know them very well. I, so as one Hawaiian said, this book, Mauna Kea is a, um, let's see, how did Kuluna put it? Um, it's a compelling, entertaining story that encompasses, that encompasses ancient Hawaiian concepts and American thought patterns. And and so it's both books are the juxtaposition of those, and they reflect my personal experience first as a witness, then processing it, and then of course ultimately getting involved in the efforts to protect. Actually, uh, behind the scenes as a ranger, I also worked with my Hawaiian friends to protect Kilauea, where they felt I could be helpful, and and that all it was all. You know, I've never, I've never aspired to become a native Hawaiian. I am a person between cultures who looks into both cultures, and there's a certain valuable perspective in that, as long as you try to write it as honestly as you can. And I wrote it initially for myself so I could process all these experiences, some of which didn't, you know, I. I didn't have the vernacular to understand what I was actually witnessing or experiencing with my friends. Anyway, long answer. Sorry, but that's. No. Uh, so the thing that's great about the book, or one of the things that's great about the book is the intricate weaving of uh, what you call magical realism with um, science, with the politics, you know, getting all of these various perspectives that sort of are the backdrop to what, you know, tourists come and think is, you know, fantasy land, <laughs> you know, like the real sort of what's underneath paradise. Um, and in some sense, it's just like anywhere else, you know, but in another sense, not be the sense that like the magic part, the magic part is real. And I kind of want to talk about that um, in a couple of ways, but I, I guess I just want to ask you first, especially as someone who's been up there working there with astronomers, 
why don't they see it? Why don't they feel it? If there truly is magic here, and there is, why is it that some people get it, understand it, experience it, and other people don't experience it? Well, one of the things that I actually touch on pretty significantly in the book is that these scientists actually did experience it. But then they denied it. And my first exposure to that was this great, you know, there's there's a, um, when an astronomer would get done, the, the, the tallest catwalk on the top of, the observ of any observatory there is still to this day the UH 88 inch telescope, which was the first giant telescope built on the mountain. <laughs> and that catwalk, sci scientists would come out, the astronomers would come out to take a break to look at the stars or to have a cigarette if they were smokers back in the day. You know, I, I'm talking, I was up there as a guide in 88. So some of these guys had been coming up since the late 60s and through the 70s. And and they would see from the catwalk these strange lights out on the North Plateau. And it was a repeated thing. I mean, they saw them. It was, it was part of that real med, it, literary, literary people call it magical realism, right? In reference to sort of the magical realism of South American and Central American literature. But, you know, it's just part of the reality, right? It's, it's the metaphysical reality here. But they would see it. But then what they would do, um, some of them would just say, well, you know, I saw that, but, uh, you know, I don't want to think about it. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not going to go there. And others would actually deny the fact by saying, well, and I remember one astronomer, I, I heard this with my own ears. Well, I think what it is is when those lights show up over there, those those the, the, there's nothing there. Okay, this is wilderness, basically. There's nothing there. There's nothing to provide the lights, let alone the behavior of the lights. So they would say, well, I think what it is is it's the permafrost in the cinder on a on, on moonlit nights, and the moonlight is coming through and refracting back and creating this illusion of lights. Which was, which is, in other words, my interpretation was these guys are just finding a scientific way to deny what they actually experienced, right? And, or more often they would compartmentalize it, you know, like, why did the brakes go out? There was no in the vehicle, you know, how, how did that happen? You know, there was no rational understanding, weird stuff would happen. Um, so I think what happens is scientists have kind of a myopia, which is both their strength and their weakness. If you follow the scientific method, your job is to theorize something, try to prove that theory, and then immediately try to disprove the theory with more data. And so to do that, to keep the integrity of that, you have to continually kind of stay within a narrow focus. So things that fall outside that, by design, are not considered. But that you can't. You have to. You have to realize then that this is a scientific truth as best we understand it. But they're often changed over time. That's what all the scientific competition is about. Somebody proves something. Somebody tries to disprove it, et cetera, et cetera. And then they have give awards to people who can do that. Well, the thing is, that's a very narrow perspective. You can't turn to scientists and expect them to understand 
things outside what their method can deal with. So that what that means is that they can't deal with the metaphysical reality in any kind of reasonable way because they, they don't have the tools to figure that out and they that's not part of their focus. The mistake is when they deny a part of reality that science is not best equipped to deal with, it'd be better to talk to the yogis or the, you know, well, the ancient scholars of Taoism and Buddhism and whatever. So that's what I call scientific my, my the scientific myopic thing. But remember, it's the strength of their discipline, but it's the weakness of their worldview. And right. I try to show both simultaneously in both my novels. There's a lot of science in both novels and a lot of this other thing. Yeah. Well, but see, and I and I hear that a lot, but it, it really means that there are human beings who have decided somewhere along the way to so over-identify with their occupation that they lose a part of their own humanness, right? <laughs> to be like, well, my science brain can't, you know, it everything has to answer to science, whatever that means, you know, observations, I guess, but they don't want to observe this. So I, I don't know. I So when you say that, it's just funny because it, it just strikes me as like, well, I'm going to repress my actual own experience as a person because what my profession tells me is that can't happen or that I don't know enough to even address that. I mean, well, and, what other profession, as a McDonald's worker, you wouldn't do that. Like what other profession do you do that? Where you're like, my profession tells me, dictates that I will not have these experiences. Okay. But you should, I would urge you to have some compassion for them because everyone who studies something they develop a paradigm which is both very liberating, it allows them to see something, but also it limits their their range of views. You know, and so, and then there's a lot of, there's a lot of peer pressure and um, institutional pressure for people not to get too far out. And so there's some risk associated for people. Um, Help me out. What's the name of the the guy that it was the original guy behind um, creating the SETI project um, to look to to set up telescopes to look for signals? Um, I've, I've just forgotten his name, but you know he took a lot of heat. Sagan took some heat too because he was involved with that. Carl Sagan, mm -hmm. um, and. So, you know, it's a combination of are you willing to entertain this as a person? But then you have to have sufficient self-regard and a sense of personal sovereignty that if you've discovered something that's unconventional, that would be a heresy, you've got to have some guts. I mean, I remember um, in my life before, I'll give you a scientific example. When in my life before I came to Polynesia, I study, I, I, I actually have an, I, my education is from the Humphrey Institute in Minnesota. It's a public policy school. And my background is, um, I was interested in sustainability. So I actually have a planning degree in energy technology, energy and, and, uh, and uh, technology planning. And so I'm, I go back on the sustainability thing long enough to be able to tell you with some experience 
that when the first models about global warming came out, the majority of the scientific community completely said, this is nuts. There's no way we could, we could have that impact on the planet. And it, it, it was courageous scientists who also had a sense of self-esteem and personal sovereignty that were willing to buck the scientific community and say, no, you know, our models indicate this. Similar thing happened in economics. Uh, it became clear in the 70s, and there were some really internationally known major studies to show that you can't sustain growth economies. But most scientists are, most economists who consider themselves scientists, and they don't have the guts to stand there. There's too much political pressure. So what I'm saying is you, you got to have some compassion for them. It's more than just their perception. It's also the constraints that are placed, especially if you come from a society that is a technocracy since the 1950s that's focused on STEM, science, energy, or science, engineering, and technology, right? That's the American identity. So... And, and that's what was emphasized and has and continues to be increasingly emphasized in the schools. So we are kind of educating people away from a broader perspective. If you read into science history, science history had a whole metaphysical aspect to it. Um, and I'm not an expert in that, but I've read enough to know that there was not, you know, there was even the reference to sacred, ge sacred geometry. Now these are these are these were mainstream ideas in an earlier time, but we're now in a different time in the 20th and latter 20th and 21st century, where the constraints on scientific thinking are substantial, and the politics is well played out in both of my novels, in Daughters of Fire, in terms of the pressures put on USGS scientists. Who told me about those pressures? And as well on the people who, uh, and then in, in, in the Mauna Kea book, even more so. So you, you're going to meet a bunch of astronomers who are different, different kinds of people that I've met. I mean, they're, they're not based on real people, but they, they're sort of composites or, you know. Uh, but what, what I want people to be able to see is, all, see all this played out. What I saw played out over a 30-year period, if you access either of my novels, you, you get, it's as if you were there with me. Um, and, in, you know, you have to be here for a long time and have intimate relationships. And I had intimate relationships and continue to have intimate relationships um, with not only Native Hawaiians, but with scientists. You know, I could see this whole interplay um, do you, let me ask you this. Do you think, uh, the fact that they saw lights, uh, whatever the phenomena is producing those lights is sort of saying like, Hey, you're looking up there for lights. There's lights right here. Or, Hey, you want to see that? Well, here it is. You know, like, do you think that there's an irony to what they're actually seeing in terms of quote unquote paranormal phenomena? Um, I'm not sure I quite understand your question. Can you repeat? I mean, they could have, like, whatever the, unless people see lights all the time up there, I guess maybe this is where the answer might be no, which is like, if people see those types of lights up there all the time, 
regardless of astronomy, um, then I guess the answer is no. But if the phenomena, if a paranormal phenomenon up there could be anything, and for them what they're seeing are lights, which is pretty much what they're seeing, trying to see out in outer space is lights <laughs> through their telescopes, um, is there sort of a, a message in what they're seeing and ignoring here, or or no, or am I just on the wrong track here? Um, you know, I I would kind of look at it in a different way. First, I would go. I, I would not use the word paranormal, because what you've done is you've also narrowed the nature of that uh, phenomena. The great author uh, Joseph Campbell. When he was being interviewed by Bill Moyers um, at the Lucas Ranch, because you know um, the Star Wars movies were based, were inspired by Joseph Joseph uh, Campbell's work. He studied myths across all cultures, and he, he was like the guy. If you, if any of you listeners haven't read, dipped into, especially if you're interested in the paranormal or uh, indigenous spirituality or whatever, Joseph. Uh, Campbell is what you want to read. But anyway, Campbell, uh, later in his life, when he's being interviewed out there, he said there's a metaphysical reality and the physical reality, both. And it's the, the physical reality is held up by a metaphysical reality. And the interesting thing is the observations of people over a long period of time and across cultures is very common in their perspective. It's really the Westerners, and they come from a more um, scientific-oriented religious background, too. He talks about the Judeo-Christian um, religion was formed during a period of, of um, when Aristotle was very influential. So it's, it's a little more like literal, like, no, no, what's actually in our sacred documents has actually happened rather than, I mean, like in most religions in the world, they're strong metaphorical stories, help people orient and that tell you them what their relationship is to each other and to the gods and to the, to the, to nature. Um, anyway, I don't, well, the paranormal thing has a lot of baggage. I think it's better to think about metaphysics in that, that, in Hawaii, there's a way in which Native Hawaiians, like my friends, walk in both realities simultaneously. They do not separate it. Like this is the reality at the shoot supermarket. This is the reality in, in, in the metaphysical world, in the cultural world. Um, one, one of the things, for example, I'll give you another example. Um, sometimes scientists... Uh, but I think this is a core issue, and I think based on your audience, this, people will be interested. When you go to ch chapter 28 in the book, you remember chapter 28? There's opens up with the two guys that are that are in this trailer that's been put up there as, to keep them warm, and then they go up and check the first telescope built on Pu'upoleahu. And then there's a discussion of what happens at Lake Waiau and why are there waves on the lake and and then there's a whole discussion of the 1968 unprecedented winter storm. Well, you know, all of those things happened. I mean, those are that that's a fictionalized version of 
stuff that actually is part of all of those are part of the astronomer's lore of working on Mauna Kea. But what they do is they 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 say I can't explain these things. I can't explain why suddenly we had the worst winter that anybody could remember just when we're trying to dig into the top of the mountain in order to level the cones so we can build the first big telescope so it'll be ready for the Apollo space launch, the moon landing. And so, you know, they compartmentalize it. So, so that's how what happens, whether it's the strange lights on the North Plateau, whether it's the 19th, trying to explain how did that 1986, why did that big storm come when it was? you know, which made it impossible to dig into the top of the mountain so they could build a telescope and it delayed the whole project by a year and they missed the the, the, the moon landing. Um, whereas the Hawaiian will say, well, think about that. Okay, why? Well, well, what's actually happening there? And what does it mean for us? How are we supposed to act as a result of that experience? So I think that scientists, and there's a, can I tell you another great example? You remember when the Voyager space probe went out and they discovered the first erupting volcano uh, on on Io, which is a moon, one of the moons of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Okay, until that moment, scientists' doctrine was there are no erupting volcanoes on any other planet in the solar system except ours. So when the 88-inch telescope was built, they actually picked up. They saw a volcano erupting, but it was just a bunch of photons. And they kept puzzling. What's all the, what are all these photons? What's going on up there? And finally, because they had no paradigm in which to understand it, or their, the idea that there might be erupting volcanoes was not in their doctrine, they said it must be just a technical glitch. It was just a technical glitch. So actually, the 88-inch telescope science, the guys on that telescope, they saw the erupting volcano on Io before the Voyager went by. It was Voyager that made them go back and look at their data and said, geez, we actually saw this a number of years ago. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's not yeah. exactly yeah. ideological. This is why you have to have compassion for it. It's a limitation of the strength of their scientific method. It's a limitation of the strength of their scientific method. Hmm. And so, and that isn't even a metaphysical reality. That's a physical reality. That's an erupting volcano. Now, the interesting thing is, one of the scientists who lived on, on um, Bradford Smith was the head of the imaging team for the Voyager space probe. It, it, he was the one on TV explaining what we were seeing. And but he also was on the nomenclature until his death a few years ago. He was on the nom international nomenclature committee, and he's the guy who was living in Hawaii on Kealakekua Bay at Naapo'opo'o and was interested in Hawaiian culture and knew a lot about Hawaiian culture, even knew some of the language, had started studying the language. He's the guy that when the nomenclature commi committee that names all the features that we have in the solar system. He's the guy that said, you know what, that, er that erupting volcano that we saw, let's name it Pele, after the goddess 
of Hawaiian volcanoes. Now, there is a case of someone who's got a bit broader view, right? You know, and he's a very, um, how do I put it? I mean, he was a very prominent, he, he, until his death, he was a, a very prominent member of the scientific community. But like Sagan and others, he had a broader perspective, enough that he could honor this Hawaiian goddess by giving, hey, first volcano outside the solar, outside of Earth, let's name it Pele. And he got him to go along because he had clout. Does that answer your question, Jeremy, or am I taking you too far yeah. afield? No, that, that's good. <laughs> and I apologize, I apologize for the long answers. It's a kind of a, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Dane. I'm mostly Danish, and, and Minnesotans have long winters, and so they learn to just talk probably too long. Um, Hawaiians call it vala'au, you know. They say, oh, brah, you went vala'au so much, you just like some of us. People would rather hear you talk than me, so it's fine. Dreamlanders, we will be right back with more Tom Peake after these messages. Unknowncountry.com it's huge. It's much more than just a Whitley Strieber book site. It contains thousands of hours of interviews, meditations, podcasts of all kinds. My original hypnosis tapes are there. You can actually hear the moment that I discovered that I at least was not alone in this universe in the office of Dr. Donald Klein so many years ago. Whitley Strieber audiobooks, Communion, Transformation, The Secret School, Breakthrough, Majestic, and so much more powerful meditations. But more even than all that, it is a community of people who are either looking to gain contact or actually in contact now. There is no community like it in the world. It is absolutely unique. Contact really is happening here. That's what these shows are all about. That's what my life and this website are about. It's real, and it can be of enormous benefit to us individually and to mankind as long as we take our part and do it our way. This is what being a member of Unknown Country is about. So go to unknowncountry.com and subscribe today. Join us and join, very frankly, the future. Um, so I had told you that I wanted, you know, sort of a, I mean, it's a little too late for a jumping off point, but if, um, it, it sort of works in with what we're talking about. Uh, there's just a line in here where you have someone talking about um, uh, about these sort of uh, metaphysical happenings and saying, as a scientist, it's impossible for me to comprehend all that. But as a blue water sailor, I know people experience things in wild places that are difficult to explain. Um, so, and that kind of, that gets at the, the, the sort of 
two-tiered thinking that we're talking about. It just struck me reading that, what happens when we concrete and tar over all of the wild places? Um, Does that kill the magic? Um, Where does that magic go? Or, you know, the spirit of the land, where does that spirit go? Does it bide its time? (laughs) Like what, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I assumed that that magical stuff that happens here in Hawaii wouldn't occur back on the continent. And I got scoldings from Hawaiians, including another kupuna that sort of showed up, um, which my first kupuna, um, Antilena Ala, she said, you know, she kind of predicted that this man would show up. But anyway, one of the things he said to me is, everything that you've experienced here in Hawaii, you can experience when you go back home. He said, you just, now that you know how to not close your eyes to it, it will occur. You'll be able to see it. So that's one one element. Antilena the kupuna that, um, my first kupuna and who brought me into her family. You know, she once said, there are no people. There are no places. She said, there are no places without the people. So what Uncle Ed was saying on the one hand is if we're sensitized to it, we'll realize that there's the sacred is everywhere. And we want to be open to that in our perception as well as in our hearts. And if we don't understand something, it's okay. In other words, you don't you can accept something that you don't understand. I mean, you can have an experience and not understand. That's better than dissecting it or turning in. I mean, one of the problems that can that often occurs in the discussion of so-called paranormal stuff is that some of the people who have had experiences they also just sort of want to apply the scientific method to prove that what they had was it sometimes it's better right but the other thing getting back to the question of if you tar and concrete over these places and it's a really good question that you're bringing up it it, it isn't probably the tar and the concrete that's going to destroy whatever the sacred nature of it is it's when you have taken all the people who are the intermediary between us and the sacred from the place that you will not, as another human being, be able to access it. In other words, it's critically important that Hawaiians are here. There are so many tourists. You know, I was a ranger. I talked to thousands of tourists. I was a tour guide on Mauna Kea and I was a ranger. People have experiences. They sense the sacred nature of it. They understand they're in a special place, and they they enunciate it. But it but part of that is too because they're interacting with the island people, and it isn't just the Hawaiians. All the different ethnicities that have come since then, you know, the people that worked in the plantations who come from the Asian traditions, which are also very ancient. They go back five thousand years. You know, there's a lot of people sensitized to this who are not in denial about it and who try to integrate it with their generally modern view or contemporary view or technological view, which is, a you know, an understanding of science. 
And, and actually, I find like Native Hawaiians, they don't have any problem with science. They're inclusive. They see science as, but they recognize it's a narrow perspective and that they have a bigger worldview. But they don't say, our worldview is better than yours. But the scientists, of course, tend, you know, there's a whole history of colonialism. I mean, some of this was just to justify economic and military reasons, but but there was also kind of a, a philosophical thing that somehow or other this is an inferior culture because they have a broader view. And that that was a mistake. You know, that was a mistake and also um, led to a justification of colonialism, of being able to take over people because, well, they're inferior to our culture. And some of it was racial, but a lot of it was actually what I would call ethnocentric. They just felt, and there are, most scientists I've met are still pretty ethnocentric. They're not racist toward the Hawaiians. They just believe that their worldview and that the mountain's purpose should be for science. You know, they, they, they have an ethnocentric bias, which then doesn't allow them to see more clearly or to feel some compassion for the Hawaiians and their frustration for years of having every sacred place damaged by the incoming culture. So I would say that that's only part of the problem, tarring and concrete. If you replace the people who have a long connection to the land with people who do not have a long connection and who also by cultural, because of their cultural background, may not be able to make those connections. That's the real damage. And then if it's the, it's the tar and the concrete and the, and, the, and the new settlers that actually has destroyed the potential for it to be sacred. But I, I suspect if, if you should ask that to a native Hawaiian, you know, what if all those things happen? Is the land still sacred? They'll probably tell you, yeah, because it was sacred even before we showed up, right? You know, but, there, but people are an intermediary between the land and its larger meaning. And well, if the yes. people who understand it aren't there, it's not accessible to other human beings. Does that make sense, Jeremy, to you? Well, yeah, and it's not, and, and it may even be further than that. Like, one thing I wanted to tell you is uh, when, I, when my grandmother died a number of years ago, on my dad's side, I uh, went to spread her ashes, I think it was on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And um, this is after having lived here for a number of years. And going there, you know, it's big, it's beautiful, it's a mountain, it's, you know, it, it's, but it's, there's something soul dead about it. Like, there, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on, like, why was this place so cold and dead as opposed to Hawaii, which is, like, alive and almost cartoonishly alive to me inside, you know, inside me. And I got to thinking about what is the difference, and the difference is it didn't have its you know, native cultures right. along the mountain to know what to do ritualistically or however that shakes out to sort of, I mean, I, I guess I almost see, you know, these cultures as being in tune with earth, mama earth, obviously, but then also doing some sort of like, almost like acupuncture or something like there's something in these spots that needs to be done. And if no one is there to do it, 
then it atrophies for a while or something until until it comes up, you know, culture comes up through the land. And so if it comes up again through people there, great, then maybe they can do it. <laughs> but if not, what happens? And I feel like that might be sort of the difference between Hawaii and other places is that they don't have those people there with the, the so-called knowledge, but really it's just the openness to the very place that they live to have that come through as what needs to, what must I do here, you know, for earth. So you brought up the question of ritual. Mm -hmm. And in all the great ancient religions, um, religious traditions, let's put it this way, ritual is really important because those rituals are the way in which you um, re-enchant places that have been damaged and by the way it's not just you know i got a lot of scoldings from hawaiians who said i you're, you're too you know you disqualify yourself because you're not hawaiian you come from a different ethnicity they would they they have a very they're one of the least ethnocentric people i have ever met in my life because that's not in their philosophy. Their philosophy has to do about aloha. But they would say, you know, anybody can understand what we understand because the mana of the earth will come through your feet if you're paying right. attention. In other words, they don't disqualify you because you're not a native person. Now, right. there are some activists who might have that perspective, but the, but the cultural practitioners that I have known and the people I worked with at the park and and uh, you know, stood on the police line with, you know, there was a full acceptance of the potential. And the, the worst they could say to you is, ah, poor thing. Can't, he doesn't get it. But they wouldn't say, you don't, he he can't get it because he's yeah. not one of, you know, the, the, well, that's also, one of the I mean, boy, right? As white guys, uh, I'm sure we've both had our experiences. So it's not as though it's cut off from us because we're white guys. It's only cut off from you if you, as you say, are cut off from it. You know, if you live a separated sort of divorced life in that way. Um, but, and that gets me to something else, which I find interesting, especially given, oh, go ahead. It's not about color. The other thing is, it's not about skin color. Yeah. I got scrollings about this. And by the way, there are different, there are a lot of different white people. Like I come from the Danish Scandinavian side. If you go back two or three hundred years, that they're filled with all kinds of pagan stuff, so-called pagan stuff, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, so like a Scandinavian comes at this stuff, especially one who grows up in a rural area on the mighty Mississippi. He grows up with a different set of values than a guy who grows up in New York City who's an Anglo-Saxon. Right. A, or, you know, someone who's from, you know, there are significant differences in the traditions of every single ethnic group within what you call the white group. What's what I love in, in, in Hawaii is I have not felt like I, you know, I had to learn to navigate a lot of different cultures. You know, Minnesota, when I left, was a really homogeneous place. And so when I got here, it was like suddenly I get to see the world. I'm on one little island. It's, I'm not even on Oahu where Honolulu is. I'm, I'm on one island, and I've met 
people of all these different ethnicities, and every single one comes from a every single one of those people come from a different tradition in their family and in their ethnicity. And I've never felt judged. I mean, in other words, you use that term white, but you've been on the island long enough to, you know, think that through. I would say, you know, what's your ethnicity? Where did you come from? What were your family traditions? What were your spiritual traditions? And um, you should ask Native Hawaiians about that. You know, ask Lehulua Lopez, for example, um, who you interviewed um, not too long ago. I mean, how does she kind of frame that? Um, so, but the, but the main point you were making, I agree with, in other words, you've had access to some of these experiences and so have I, but well, but let me ask you, why did you have access? Why do you think you had access? Why do you think you had those experiences? I mean, you came from Newark, mm, <laughs> Newark, New York. or New no, York. No. Oh, Newark, New York. No, New York, Manhattan. In oh, Manhattan. Place. Okay, well, yeah. that's not interesting. That's an island, you know. Mm -hmm. How many people there think of that as actually an island? Do you think? <laughs> yeah. For I example, know. right? I had a I had an agent once who was lived in Manhattan, and I always call it, you know, I would say, you know, how things on your island, you know, and he'd like an island. Well, you're on Manhattan Island, right? But anyway, asking you how how do you process that? How do you how do you feel that that's happened? Why uh, why are you sensitive to it and have not dismissed it, but rather are trying to understand it and integrate it? Well, um, I have a a couple of odd I don't know what you would call them recurring life experiences. Um, one would be, you know, I, I don't believe that they are alien and I don't believe they're abduction, but fairly early on, I had what you would consider to be alien abduction type experiences. Then somewhere along the way, that was in, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts and then my adult life, New York and further adult life here. Uh, in New York, um, I ended up having, I guess what you would call big spiritual experiences that seem to be not related to that, but certainly they're in the same, they know about each other. <laughs> uh, so I think I've, I've, I guess I've always put it this way. If I didn't have these experiences, I would probably be not even skeptical. I'd be somebody who ignores all this stuff because who cares? It's all garbage. I would be that guy, but I've had them, so I can't do that. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think I've been pried open, uh, until, until I didn't need prying no more. Um, so let me so ask you, I, I what has been, somewhere in there makes me open, I guess. Let me ask you what, what has been the impact you've lived uh, here for over a decade now on the big Island. Okay. Which is the, uh, the, the land of the active volcanoes, the snow capped mountains in the winter. I mean, that's why it's so cold up here at the top of the volcano. I'm wearing a sweater. I mean, we have more. I mean, it's a magical place. And it's not highly urbanized. You know, um, there's a lot of open space. And also, I think it's one of the more traditionally, there are more cultural practitioners here. Or there's certainly, that's the Hawaiian presence, the native Hawaiian presence 
is very clear here. And a lot of the leadership of the political movement is here. So what's been the impact for you specifically? And then for most of that decade and a half or whatever it is, you've lived on South Point, which is a is a pretty significant place archaeologically, spiritually, um, physically, with those incredible waves and the incredible winds that come. This is the, you know, that and then so what's been what's been the specific impact of that on you and i would say in two ways there's two parts to it in your worldview jeremy but also in your way of being hmm. as a person what's the impact of hawaii on those two things for for jeremy um trying to think if my worldview has been changed um I mean, they're kind. Of, there's kind of similar, similar things. I, I would say that, um, well, uh, the thing that I certainly did here that I didn't do anywhere else was learn from nature. I mean, that's one thing. Um, and uh, and I still, of course, still learn from nature and see the aliveness of of everything. I guess it's different understanding the aliveness of everything, you know, in an abstract way and then living in it. Um, and all of that, that, How is that different? How, how is that different? That's really good. You're on to something there. Well, I mean, in one way, it, you know, you, well, it's sort of the difference between being and thinking <laughs> one way you're thinking about things. You're, you're, it makes sense it's sort of intellectually there and you can kind of feel it. But the other way, you know, you're immersed in it and it's not just, it's not that carbon copy and there's more to it than just, you know, it's full immersion. So there's, there's more, you understand it from the inside out, not the outside in, which in the outside in, you can't know, <laughs> you can't know all of what it entails, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's really thinking about that. I really want to put an asterisk for your audience in that on that understanding it from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And one of the values of Hawaii, and I've seen visitors, it happens to visitors. You know, Hawaii's beauty and power, primal nature, is so big here that it's like uh, to use a mainland kind of term it's like in your face i mean it's pretty hard to keep it it's pretty hard not to feel the islands when you come in i mean people don't i can't tell you how many people couldn't articulate it but they said yeah i really feel different i feel like i've entered a different world and, and, and there are different ways even that that happens here I mean, there's that normal quote-unquote normal way of like just the awe of but like living here on mauna loa as mauna loa was erupting <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other ball game, you know, and like just sitting out in the dark, watching the glow and contemplating you know, the power and the immensity and how, you know, small, but not insignificant we are in comparison. You know what I mean? Like you don't feel small and, and like, oh, I'm useless. You feel like you're a part of it. 
you know, but, but also, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you even put it into words? I guess that's what it is. You're confronted with wordless situations all the time <laughs> and they're brilliant. You know, they're just, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Sure. You know, how do you put the wordless into words that way. So hold your left brain harmless. Yeah. Hold your left brain harmless. You know, that's the analytical side of our brain. And if you can experience things with the right brain, you know, one of the wonderful things about indigenous cultures generally, and certainly in my, from what I've read, but it's certainly in my experience with my native Hawaiian friends, is that they have whole brain thinking. They don't have a war between the left side of their brain, which says, uh, which is where the analytical stuff is. It's also, by the way, where judgmentalism lives and the sense of separation. These are all important things that humans need to survive. But we have this right brain where intuition, sensitivities, the sense that we're part of everything, other people, other objects, of nature. You know, I'm oversimplifying this. But we've got two sets of circuitry so that we've got really extraordinary potential perception and learning ability. And in Hawaii, uh, the, 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 Hawaii, the Hawaiian people use both sides. They're not at war. This really confused the astronomers when, when we'd be at a hearings because they, they'd say, well, this is science versus culture. This is, this is the, the Catholic Church against uh, Galileo again, you know. Which right. just relates to their own um, professional wound from way back in the day, you know. But it had no application here because the Hawaiians, I mean, some of the leaders, Kiloa Pashoda was a telescope operator. Nelson Ho was an amateur astronomer. When I started testifying at the hearings and whatnot, and also when I would talk behind the scenes to try to help astronomers understand why there was so much anxiety and worry and fear and anger ultimately about their telescope you know they 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 didn't um they were dealing with their former tour guide who loves astronomy i mean some of the leaders in the whole protect the mountain we we loved astronomy and there and another one of the litigants was her father was an astronomer debbie ward i mean you know it's like he, it was never about that. It was a land use conflict. And the people who had a rigid view, almost an orthodox, almost a religious view, were the scientists, <laughs> not the Hawaiians. The Hawaiians had this sort of openness, right? You know, hey, we got no problem with science. They kept telling him, they kept telling him, this isn't about science. We're not, we, 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 we love science, you know? Uh, but the astronomers couldn't, Again, it come back to the myopic thing. But we each have that, and she said, at some point, something, how did you say you've got pride open? At some point, you broaden your perspective, but coming from our Western traditions, we have a liability. All right, everyone, here endeth the program. Subscribers, as you know, you have heard or watched everything commercial-free the entire episode. Non-subscribers, what you may not know is that there is much more to this episode uh, that you can access by subscribing to unknowncountry.com. And of course, you also get all of Dreamlands of Forever Ago in their entirety, commercial-free, and all of the other video, audio. Honestly, how does Whitley even pay for this website? It's, it, it, it's a big website. 
<laughs> there's a lot of content and you should uh, slip them some coin and go uh, listen and or watch and or read till your heart's content. Uh, my thanks to Tom Peak. Please do visit him at tompeak.com. That's T-O-M-P-E-E-K.com. All one word. Uh, and check out his work. Of course, we'll have an Amazon link on the Unknown Country show page. Um, but do check it out. If, if you've ever been interested in Hawaii and sort of what it's like um, to live here in terms of what's at stake, uh, this is definitely the book for you. Um, and now i got to go read his first book, Daughters of Fire. I never read it, and now I want to read it. So it has that effect. Uh, go, go read his work. Um, but not before I say, once again, thank you for listening to me for the last, I don't know what, year and a couple of months. And again, thanks to Whitley. He will be back, of course, next week. And um, yeah, come find me on the internets. Um, I will be seeing you around. Who knows? Maybe I'll pop in and do like a guest host again someday. It just won't be a permanent thing. That's all. Yeah, we'll see what happens. All right. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.